0: Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Joaquin Simo, cocktail star, is on the show today to talk about his cocktail venture, Pouring Ribbons, in the East Village. Joaquin Simo from Pouring Ribbons is on the show today, our first cocktail guest in a series of interviews we've done. Hey, buddy, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Nice to see you. It's good to be here. So, you know, weirdest thing. I was looking at your biography you sent over, trying to learn a little bit about you, develop some good questions. And I'm like, hey, wait a second. This guy's my age and he lived in Boston. And he went to BU, and those are things I did. And you are an English major, which is what I was. I mean, I, how did we not run into each other before? I don't even know. Well, actually,
1: I was. Uh, I picked BU partially because of the proximity of the Hillel house to where the English Department building was, which was almost right yeah, across the street. they right, right very close uh, to each other. I was certainly the goy boy toy at the uh, at that time in my life, and uh, that proximity to Hillel was just great. It was like. How are you doing, Hadassah? Oh, Rachel, how are you doing, girl? All right, this is great. It was a, definitely a key factor in choosing the Terriers.
0: Oh, <laughs> I got to be that. honest, for me too, 100%. <laughs> I went on this tour, and uh, the girl that gave the tour was just like, I, I could imagine a whole life with her. And I was like, you know, then I went to like another school that shall remain nameless, and, you know, it's a little different. And I was like, man, I don't know. I think I'm in it for they, – they do okay with the uh, the female – Coeds. eds yeah, I I've to be spent
1: you. so little time on campus. It was ridiculous. Is that true? Yeah. I worked full time uh, to put myself through school. So I would stack my classes from seven or eight in the morning until about four in the afternoon or six at night. Uh, about twice a week and then I'd be working full-time
0: on the days uh, that you weren't it yeah, that makes a lot of sense I never even thought about that
1: yeah it was it That's took some interesting scheduling but uh it was the only way I could make it happen so or
0: perhaps why we didn't run into each other yeah
1: I spent so, so little time on campus I never lived in the dorms oh uh, you never lived in a dorm never lived in the dorm I snuck into them uh, how did that
0: happen? Long. aren't you required to live in a dorm for the you first were year?
1: but i I didn't do my freshman year at bu which is the oh, okay. one year that they have that requirement <laughs> now so. it's all making sense I, uh
0: yeah because everyone had that Warren Towers experience, you know? Like, yeah,
1: I had a few experiences at Warren Towers, but uh, <laughs> thankfully none of them
0: involved the food. Hopefully you use protection. Yeah. All right, so <laughs> you, what was your uh, entree into the bartending world? Well, I was uh, I was basically on, on
1: this side of the bar uh, for a long time, especially during college. I had become a, a very good regular at the White Horse Tavern. Sure, which, I know uh, that place. The in one college. in Boston,
0: though, not the one in... Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly, the one on... Um, uh, on Harvard, on Brighton Ave.
0: Yeah. I think it's Brighton Brighton
1: Ave, yeah. just off of Harvard Ave. Uh, so I'd become a regular there, and I'd become such a good regular that I would be allowed to sit, uh, to sit at the bar and drink beers while the staff cleaned up after closing at 2 o'clock. Oh, you
0: got closing uh, privileges. I you had, got to hang.
1: Yeah, I got to hang out. And the managers would say, it's okay to give them beers. I'd order pizza for the staff who would stay to clean. And after... Couple of years of watching the breakdown of this and hosting a lot of after hours and whatnot, I pretty much had their routine down pat to the point that I had a standing job offer. So Josh, the guy who was a uh, one of the managers at the time, just said, just tell me whenever you want, I'll put you on the schedule. Really?
0: So what must have been uh, some good pepperoni, bro.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: like, you know what I like. Just stop by anytime with a pizza, we'll put you on the schedule. They were they could not have been more
1: gracious. And so you know, it was, uh, I was doing tech support uh, for an ISP uh, to put myself through school, so it was certainly customer service. Uh, you know, you're talking to a grandmother through how to set up Eudora or Outlook Express so she can then download pictures of her grandkids. So if you can do that, you can talk to someone about, you know, them having a rough day. It's all sides of the same coin. So we would, uh, I basically just got tired of doing working in computers and decided to just go and get paid for spending all this time at this one bar that i was doing anyway i figured the owner doug probably owed me thousands of dollars that i'd given him so maybe at the end of a couple of years we would even ourselves out uh so started at the door um i'm not a particularly large or intimidating presence being yeah about, you're uh, missing
0: a couple feet for that yeah job.
1: yeah it was certainly uh certainly the the shrimp and the uh On the doorstep, but I made up for it with just personality. I knew I wasn't going to get very far by trying to intimidate a drunk BC frat boy. So I would, I would be the nice guy and, you know, just go. And I'd been a regular there for so long. And if you remember, it was a pretty busy bar.
0: It was a busy bar.
1: Yeah, I used to. You know, you could fit about 250 people there, and some there would frequently be a line, and so people would come in. They'd really want to get get in. So telling people no, you had to figure out ways to make that sound like a yes, which was right, of right. course wonderful. I'll get you in when for, I can,
0: but I can't do it right now. Okay.
1: Exactly. Yes, I'm so sorry that you're cold out. You knew it was February, and yet you're out in a mini skirt and a halter top,
0: which was the classic move. Yeah, oh, no, the yeah, but classic. I'm so
1: cold. It's like it's february you're yeah. kind of an idiot yeah you're very cute but you're kind of an idiot uh so
0: <laughs> but wait though hold on because that was in the proximity of the the deaf school did you get because they used to roll as a pack thursday
1: nights uh were the deaf night and they used to just <clears throat> congregate around where the speakers were because they could feel the bass oh okay okay uh, and you'd always feel like a dick because you'd have you know three cases of beer in your hand and you're like yelling like move get out of the way and then you wouldn't reel and they just wouldn't do anything because they added their back to you and obviously couldn't hear you but all you knew is that you had you know all this weight on you and you just needed to get through to the bar and finally someone would pull them aside and they would sign i'm sorry and you're like oh i'm such a (laughs) right you're deaf that's why you weren't moving right good thing i didn't shank you yeah Yeah. seriously what you didn't even have hands to shank someone it wasn't even enough right because you're yeah so yeah, that was uh, that Did was. Did you used to bad.
0: try to pull that thing where you stack the beer glasses on top of each other for like the fifty strong pint glass like carry? I could.
1: I that would have ended so poorly uh, <laughs> had I tried that. No, no. I, I think the thing I was most proud of was schlepping four cases of beer with inverted bottles stuck on the top one up a flight of stairs and across a busy bar. Like you do that regularly, and that skill never goes away. It's something that's in yeah. in need in a busy bar. Yeah. Oh, well, it definitely is. Like just your ability to.
0: Shlep. Shut up and work and yeah. yeah. Uh, You're only as good as your last pool is a guy (laughs) I used to know would say. Who is it? Uh, Don Lee has a little,
1: you know, the little internet memes that have been going around about various jobs where it's like, you know, this is what your friends think you do. This is what your family thinks you do. And there's a little funny picture of all of them. Well, so the one for mixologists had, when it said what you actually do, had a picture of a Sherpa and it was like, yep. That's pretty much what we do. We just lug heavy gear and lots of bottles around to events. And, yep, we pretty much feel like Sherpas. And that's where my barback training has really served me well. Is, it's roadies and vests. like
0: uh, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah, We're well-dressed roadies. That's <laughs> pretty much all we are. So, I mean, uh, you're in Boston. Mm-hmm. You're out of college. You're doing some bartending now. Uh, what was the next move for you? Uh, next move was
1: to kind of realize what I, what I was and wasn't learning. Um, I, you know, obviously barbacking for a while teaches you a lot about kind of rhythm and flow and uh, just putting your head down, shutting up and working and anticipating and responding, uh, really learning how to be a team player. Uh, so when I started bartending, it was great because, you know, you already knew where everything was and you could be very smooth. And uh, then it was more about learning how to bartend which is had nothing to do with making drinks because you're in a busy college bar by that time i was working at a bar called the great scott uh which was oh, transitioning yeah, yeah. Into kind of like an indie rock venue at that time
0: that was like way up on com ave right
1: it was harvard and com yeah like opposite uh that big liquor store that, that was that... uh
0: like the tea stop was right there
1: yeah exactly so uh working there you know you're opening up rolling rocks you're pouring You know, uh, you're pouring shots, you're maybe
0: making a margarita. Because that was like a BC bar, right? It was like, yeah, it did you cross was. lines to do that? It was like a Bloods and Crips thing. Uh, so you had to like kind of be quiet about where you've graduated. You know, from? given
1: my hatred of BC stemming from growing up in Miami and watching, uh, watching right, Doug the, Flutie break yeah. our hearts, I mean, I grew up loathing BC. Yeah. Uh, to this day, I mean, I've actually. Um, Every time an Eagle passes, you're like,
0: oh, motherfucker.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, my, <laughs> my love of the Canes has informed so many other things to yeah. the point where any time BC plays Notre Day, am I finally the only satisfactory conclusion is the stadium blowing up.
0: Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious.
1: It's really, uh, It's the only satisfactory conclusion to that. Um, but yeah, so I was, but at this point it was moving away from being a BC bar and it was sort of, um, they were just trying to concentrate more on being kind of a live uh, indie rock venue. So we're going into that and, you know, you're, you're just learning, you're learning how to talk to people and learning how to make and maintain regulars. Uh, when what you're giving them is not this like perfectly crafted cocktail, they're not coming to you for this rarefied experience. They're going to you because they're contractors and they've just had a long day. They're truckers and they've had a really long day. They're teachers and they've been putting up with kids all day. And, you know, they go to you because it's not because you open up the best Bud Light in town, but it's because you listen and you talk. And that for me was really bartending and learning under guys like Sean Gavin, uh, and Seamus from the very early days, uh, just watching them at the white horse and then all the wonderful guys that i worked with at great scott and uh the white horse they were so hospitable they were so focused on trying to make that guest experience as good as it could be uh that that never really left me and it just coming from a customer service background uh they made it very clear that what we did was customer service and there was never getting around that. And that's one of the main things that we've tried to to maintain, especially at pouring ribbons. And one of those things we tried to do a lot at DNC was to make sure that uh, the mixology thing never got in the way of customer service, that you never put customer service on hold because you were focusing on the drink making. And that was certainly what I strive to do when I was there. And, you know, to this day, that's the first thing I tell people when I'm training them is like, I, I can teach a monkey how to jigger. But if I can't teach you how to bartend, you ha- bartending is about the interaction with the guest and about making sure they're being prioritized. And you know, there's there's some people that have it and some people that don't. Uh, and you can teach anyone how to follow a recipe, but uh, really learning how to bartend, that's a, that's a little tougher skill to acquire.
0: So when you say DNC, you don't mean. Like the Democratic National Convention, oh, hanging no. out with the Clintons <laughs> and like Obama giving speeches. You mean Death and Co. I mean Death and Co. in yeah. Manhattan. Yep. So how did you make that switch? How did it, what happened to make you go just a long night on the T and it just kept going? And you missed your stop and you end up in New York. I mean, what happened? Pretty much.
1: I used to I used to run off to uh, to New York whenever I'd get the chance, which was sadly not as often as I would have liked. Uh, I had a dear friend that I'd known from Miami uh, who was a graphic designer here in Brooklyn. And I used to take the, the Fung Wa bus up on weekends. Sure. And uh, we'd go drinking scotch at the Brazen Head on Atlantic Ave back when they had this great scotch selection. Then we'd end up randomly popping around downtown Manhattan bars. And I uh, usually end up at Passerby, Toby Cicchini's dearly, dearly lamented. It's pretty cool uh, cat. Bar. I. Th- I love Toby. He's one of my favorite grumpy old men.
0: I mean, if you're going to create something that's going to live beyond you, the cosmopolitan isn't the worst, you know?
1: Uh, yeah. He, that's pretty uh, amazing, you know? He did all right with that drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A few yeah. people have tried that one. Yeah, I may have seen across the bar.
0: I may have made a few thousand of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, at some point you decided, you know, not only do I want to visit... I might, I might want to live here. Yeah,
1: I had pretty much gotten the bug. And I think I knew enough about New York City um, to realize that it was a next step. It was a next thing that made sense. I felt like uh, in Boston, I had such entrenched social and professional circles that breaking out of them uh, was going to be a little more challenging. And I Is that thought, true? Yeah. I had I, been friends with so many of the people who I lived with and worked with for so many years that... Uh, it would have been, I think, more challenging to stay in Boston and try to <clears throat> get a job at number nine park or you know, at that time I was I was aware of stuff like the B-side lounge and what was going on there and like but I know I didn't know Brother Cleve, I didn't know Misty, I didn't know John Gertson. uh all people who I'm happy to call friends and colleagues now, but that was all going on more yes. or less in, in another circle in yeah. someone else's Venn diagram. Uh but it wasn't part of what I was uh, really aware of. So uh, I'd gone to New York and I was like, that's where I have to go to learn. That's where I have to go to get better at this. And so uh, I packed up my things and uh, moved to New York in very early January and tried to look for a bar job, which makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, so this first couple <laughs> bitterly cold months of sleeping on an air mattress
0: in an unheated room in Red Hook uh,
1: sucked yeah uh, and you're really going sucked. to
0: the bar and they're like yeah well you knew it was february bro so you should have yeah. worn a jacket uh, <laughs> and then you're like no but i'm trying to get a job no, this but time but you don't i have know. my resume yeah yeah
1: won't that keep Can't me warm you take it? yeah it was uh it did not work out so well uh, i started working at a at a little Italian place in Tribeca before landing a full-time gig at NoHo Star, and uh, that was a nice kind of crash course into busy New York restaurant bartending.
0: Sure, because uh, that's kind of like an intersection of worlds there.
1: It really is, and it was—it was just a lot of fun. Uh, I spent about six months there, which, given the turnover rate in that place, uh, made me. Uh, Made me a pretty long term employee. That was there. a good
0: five months longer than a lot of dudes. Yeah, uh,
1: a lot. Uh, that, that place really would churn and burn. Uh, at least at that point. So, but it was good. You know, uh, the owner George there had a very very finicky palate, and he was very very perceptive. And I was always extraordinarily pleased that in the six months that I was there, he'd only ever sent back one drink uh, that I'd ever made, and he sent it back saying I'd added a quarter ounce too much of a given sweetener, which caused no end of swearing up and down and muttering dark curses under my breath about how could this guy know. And, you know, now given what I do, I realize quarter ounce extra sweetener does make a pretty big difference. But at that point, I just thought he was being kind of a fussy old man. And it's funny how how right he, you know, really turned out to be. But uh, that was one of my crash courses in really working a lot with fresh juices and things like that. And that was something I took to the next program uh, that I went uh, to, which was at Camino Sur, which was a very ambitious South American restaurant, uh, pretty much thing from Colombia down to Argentina and all those countries in between. Uh, so pan South American food, it was being run by two very bright, very enthusiastic uh, Colombians um, and they brought me aboard to head up the bar program. Because you're Ecuadorian. And... I'm Ecuadorian. And so I nailed the interview. You yeah. Know? I mean, we were already talking about all of the same kind of exotic fruits we wanted to play around with. And, you know, we were chatting about the wines uh, that we were going to be focusing on. We had this great vocabulary concerning the food. Did uh, you have so... to
0: roll your R's when you said jigger? <laughs> like, was it, that was the interview? Yeah. We didn't jigger. That was totally a Freeport bar. <laughs>
1: there there was no stirring of cocktails uh there was you, you know there when you're making a lot of like dirty vodka martinis people don't care so much whether or not they're stirred yeah. uh so uh but we had a fairly ambitious for the time this was god i guess now 7 maybe 8 years ago uh we had Half of our cocktail menu was pisco, and we were using a bunch of single varietal piscos, uh, not just quebrantas, but uh, torrentels and italias. Uh, We're using acholados or blends and using each one in different drinks for different reasons. Uh, We're using a lot of interesting fruit purees and using a lot of fresh fruits. We're making our own kind of house sour mix with citrus and egg white. and I think the drinks we were putting out there were were definitely a notch above uh, what they probably... Uh, needed to be uh, but we were we were doing great man things were good but they were first time restaurant tours and they made a lot of the a lot of the mistakes that <clears throat> first time restaurant tours uh will make the owners uh i guess uh didn't know how to make it work as a business oh, okay. as much as they knew how to make it seem like more of a social environment for their friends, both old and new. Are you and, saying that they got high in their own Pisco supply? Uh, more or less. Yeah. And uh, you know, you don't make great decisions uh, with that. And eventually the place, I mean, I think it may have limped to two years, uh, but I think I was out by about 15 months or so. Uh, And then I was off downtown to Stanton Social, which at the time was a nice little hotspot. Yeah, it was. Everybody wanted to go down there. It was a good time. I I was. I wasn't there for too long. I'd say uh, a few months, mainly over the holidays. And uh, it was. I think uh, on my birthday, which is November seventh, I remember answering a Craigslist ad. It was kind of long, almost like needlessly wordy Craigslist ad about a new cocktail bar that was going to open up in East Village, and they, uh, you wanted, you know photo of you, they wanted a cover letter talking about why you wanted to work at a craft cocktail bar. They had all of this like long checklist of requirements simply to apply. Uh, but you know, I was curious enough about it. I knew that was kind of what I wanted to be doing. So I sent them everything they asked for and promptly didn't hear back from them uh, for ages. So I, I took the job at Stanton Social, was happily chugging along there and probably make him some good coin uh, yeah the money was not bad yeah uh but we uh you know i think first week of december or something i get an email from a david kaplan saying hey sorry it took so long to get back to you we got hit with about 500 responses to that email uh to that uh ad so we got uh it took a long time to sift them through but you're one of the finalists we'd love to meet you for a face-to-face interview and see if you'd be a good fit Said, oh right, I think I remember that place. Uh, let me head on down. So I went down uh, East Sixth Street between First and A, and uh, nailed the interview. Just uh, walked in and shot the shit with Dave and Ravi. And you this know, is Desenko. Just, just yeah, just walked in there, and I didn't have the pedigree that a lot of the other guys had that they'd already hired and that they were choosing, and they were, who else they were looking to fill the team. But the way Dave explained it later, uh, my personality won the day he said you were so passionate and so enthusiastic and so nice that i thought wow that's exactly who i would want uh dealing with my guests so uh, i got the job even though i may not have had the the more technical background uh that a lot of the other applicants may have and i, I to this day i i thank dave for uh for taking a flyer on someone uh, more on passion uh, and for love of the game rather than strictly background, something that certainly informed my own hiring decisions. So who are some of the other people in that starting lineup? Uh, most notably, uh, Phil Ward, who is heading up the bar program. We had uh, Marshall Altier for a little bit at the beginning. He had come to us from Moss Farmhouse. He's uh, now a partner with Jason Latrell and Critical Mass. Uh, they're the ones who did the consulting up at Jaybird. Phil, obviously, uh known the world over for his love of uh agave distillates especially at his bar Maya well uh we got brian miller in within the first month formerly of pegu club uh, who went on to consult at el ataria did the tiki mondays night at lani kai uh he's a rock star uh i mean that opening staff was pretty damn good and i basically shut up and put my head down and asked a lot of questions uh and smiled to guests. That was the first six months, nine months of DNC it was just I was a sponge. I never I never went anywhere without a pen and paper just to write down new recipes, uh new versions of things. Wait, why did you reach for that vermouth when you were making Manhattan with that whiskey? Wait, what about why is that vermouth different from this one? What can you tell me about it? And then going and doing tons of reading and uh the funny thing was by the time I left DNC those guys were coming to me and saying, hey, Joaquin, what can you tell me about this category of spirits or this? And I was answering their question. It was like, oh, cool, okay. Full circle. This this all works out, you know, and we can continue to grow and teach each other. Um, but I learned so much from those guys just about the classics of uh, of drink construction. What, how do you make a drink? And it was from Phil that I learned that four ingredients are better than eight. You know, and the first thing you want to do if a drink's not working and you're working on it, if you've got six ingredients in there, pull one of those out. Uh... The it's first like an thing LA you t-
0: story. You turn around mm. in the mirror and then whatever piece of jewelry you see first, when you stop, you take off. Like exactly. That. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there's, there's clearly some, there's something in there that's making things as Phil would say brown, uh, which is how he would describe muddied flavors. You know, if you're trying to add notes of this and whispers of that and an accent of this, and you're putting in more and more ingredients, what ends up happening is you taste none of them. Uh, so that was one of the first things I learned from Phil was to try to keep things as simple as possible. And if you're going to, if you're going to go through the trouble of doing an infusion for a drink, make sure you taste that infusion, make sure that is, you know, definitely a key part and it doesn't get lost because you keep trying to tinker with other notes or whatnot, like let the quality of the distillates you've chosen speak for themselves and round them out with the modifiers you've got and don't overwhelm them. Uh, and so really learning to, scale back, uh, that less is more mentality, uh, was awesome, you know, and just Phil is a genius at Mr. Potato Head. I've never met anyone better. It is humbling. You can hand that guy a bottle of a product he's never had before, never tasted, never seen. It could be in a category he's already familiar with, or it could be something totally new. And within 10 minutes, he will make about seven perfectly balanced, serviceable, variations on classics with it. It is shocking. He just gets relative weight and balance of a spirit. And so he understands that, you know, 100 proof rye whiskey is the equivalent to this gin. And this liqueur is more or less the equivalent to that liqueur. and he can just swap stuff in and out and nail exactly the proportions so well. It's really frustrating uh, when you can sit there and go through 10 drafts on a drink and have it just get close and he nails it on the first or second. And you know, it's so humbling to watch that guy create drinks and that's why he's gone on to have so much success with uh even with a single single spirit focus like he's doing at Maya well just finding the the breadth and variety uh, of the spirits that he's working with and how different those distillates really are and then celebrating them in punches and swizzles and uh, brown and stirred and refreshing drinks and beer cocktails and sherry drinks I mean he just he just keeps pumping out drinks almost effortlessly and they're so beautifully balanced. That's something which I have so much respect for.
0: It's definitely easier to get up and leave the cocktail tasting when it's one or two trials as opposed to 10. And you're like, (laughs) I think I need to go home and sleep this one off. You know? (laughs) Makes yeah. the day a little bit more productive.
1: Those uh, those tastings for the DNC menus were epic. Eventually, I think we finally started doing them years, years too late. Uh, but we finally started spreading them out over two days uh, instead of just doing the one. But when we had we would average about 60 drinks on a menu, and we'd be turning over.
0: 60, 6 zero. Yeah. That's a lot.
1: Uh, we I think the highest we went was somewhere in the high 80s or maybe early 90s. Amazing. Of drinks. And I think when we did that menu, we had 60 new cocktails that we were debuting on that menu. Usually, it was somewhere between 25 and 40 um, that we were putting on that were new, and then the others were being carried over. Uh, so. You know, you'd have five, six bartenders who were all contributing drinks. Whoever was a head bartender would usually kind of take the the lion's share of contributions. But everyone would walk in there with anywhere from five to twelve drinks that they would be tasting uh, the staff on, and it would just get passed down. and We would invite former bartenders uh who knew our style and whose palates we trusted uh so you'd have brian miller sitting in on the tasting uh phil ward sitting in on the tasting toby cicchini sitting in on the tasting and if you can make those three grumpy old men happy with your drink you can probably make anyone happy with that
0: drink but i remember that place was operating at such a high level it probably still is uh oh, it it's, definitely, it's is. so busy it's hard for me to get back but like i remember sitting at a, at a table. Not at the bar, and having the cocktail waitress flame the orange table side. Sure. I've never seen anything at that high level where someone who's serving a drink not not the bartender but a cocktail waitress comes over, flames it open flame at the at the table. It really impressed me that like the whole level of the staff was that cohesive.
1: We felt that it, it was important for floor service to be uh, emphasized. Uh, as well, because it was a 12 seat bar. There are 54 seats in the whole place. There's no standing. So, what is that? Uh, three out of four guests who are going to come through the door are not going to have the opportunity to sit at the bar. So, their experience at the table, you had to bring some of that. And if someone's going to order the Oaxaca Old Fashioned, which had the Distinction of being the only drink that's ever been on a DNC menu for as long as it was. I think it was on our menu for about three years. Um, it was such an iconic drink, and is now, of course, made uh, all over the world. Uh, you know, if you're going to do that drink, part of the show of that drink was that flamed orange peel. And if they've got their back turned to a guest and they're flaming an orange peel at the at the service station, you're losing part of that. And We always felt like it was important for them uh, to have the ability to bring some of the drama of the bar and the flair of the bar to the table, uh, it was always important for us to communicate with them about how to talk about these drinks. And that's why uh, eventually it wasn't just the bar staff, but it was also the floor staff who started coming to the tastings so they could listen to how we were describing these drinks. You know, If you're talking about a drink and saying, I started off with the framework of a Mai Tai and then I moved it in this direction, that's a good thing for them to know. So when a guest comes in and orders a Mai Tai, the next drink that they have as a suggestion, they could say, oh, well, if you like that, uh, Joaquin did this drink that's a riff on a Mai Tai, and it's gonna skew in this direction. Would you like to try that next uh, since you enjoy that Mai Tai so much? And you know that was a huge benefit, and I think really helped start to elevate uh, the quality of the service that we were getting. Uh, that our guests were getting on the floor, which was, uh, of course, so critical because that's the bulk of your business.
0: And some of those cocktail servers went on to become bartenders there.
1: Absolutely, uh, Jane Danger, uh, who, well, you knew to, it was destined
0: from uh, the name. You know, I mean, she's either going to be a spy or a bartender.
1: She's she's such a little rock star. Uh, she still credits me with uh, her ongoing love of amari. Uh, I was oh, the one who first started tasting her on a lot of those, and uh, I still remember her giggling with delight. With one of the first drinks she made, which was a shiku's Amari Slushy. <laughs> it's like uh, just delicious Amaro swizzle. Uh, so she's she's just great. And uh, uh, Jessica Gonzalez, who had been bartending for years, uh, before she started waiting tables at Death Co., she and I were the last of the original uh staff that was still there after five years. Uh, And she is currently the head bartender over at the Nomad, which is, of course, one of the most important bar openings in the city uh, and probably heading up what is one of the most prestigious and best executed hotel bar programs in the country. Um, She was uh, there for years and years. and. You know watching her grow and progress uh was amazing some of her drinks became some of our best-selling drinks and it was great to see and you know she's such a great strong presence behind the bar uh, it was just wonderful to watch to watch as she grew and uh, how much more refined she got at her craft
0: one of the things you mentioned was that it was uh no standing you had to yeah. be in a seat yeah um how, how did that develop and was that in response to some of the community stuff going on because i felt like there was some objection to the bar when it first opened from some of the neighbors
1: there was uh there definitely was but the no standing thing was born out of uh out of something a little more basic uh a lot i mean so many of these cocktail bars uh have followed the the kind of rules that were laid down over the Previous decade, starting with Angel Share '99, Milk and Honey opening in 2000, and these are very small, very narrow spaces uh, that wanted to be by design very controlled environments. And so, famously, Milk and Honey had the rules posted in the bathroom about you know not talking to ladies you didn't uh, know, and uh, no standing, no shouting, no you know no general riffraff behavior and whatnot. And so they were constantly filter out guests who they didn't want to come back by constantly changing their phone number and becoming inaccessible to people that's uh, right the phone so, number used to change that's yep. Right. so you know there was and dave started going to these bars and really got bit by the cocktail book dave has never bartended a day in his life this is the guy uh, who opened yeah, yeah and he's, and the, the, he's the owner. yeah He's a primary owner of it. And uh, he'd gone to Pegu and really started to geek out about this. And he was a student in the very first five-day bar program, uh, the beverage alcohol resource program taught by, you know, Dale DeGroff and Doug Frost and Steve Olson, Dave Wandrich. I heard of uh, those cats. Yeah, they they may have done something. <laughs> uh, so he, w- he took the first bar course, uh, which is b- pretty much four or five days of the most intensive tasting you can do. Uh, you just day, uh, hour after hour of blind tasting and learning tons, uh, about each category, uh, gins and vodkas and rums and agave distillates and whiskeys and brandies. It's super intensive. And he, you know, really got the cocktail bug and said, I'm going to, I'm going to take this family money that I have and open up a little cocktail bar. Uh, and the bars he'd gone to kind of had this feel to it. And then the space that they found was this very narrow railroad, you know, and what we were, what was quickly apparent once you walk into that space is that there really isn't a practical way to allow standing just the way there isn't a PDT, you know, it's too narrow a space. If you were to allow one line of people to gather behind the guests who are seated at the bar, it would make it incredibly hard for servers and busboys to be able to get uh, behind them and for normal to service to tables. progress, it's also a ridiculously dark bar. And half the guests who are sitting at the tables are sitting on black Ottomans, backless Ottomans, which people tripped over constantly, even without people standing there. So uh, logistically, there was no way we could have allowed standing, but it was also a way of controlling the amount of people. You had two bartenders in one server. Uh, so you had a point bartender who could handle about 10, 12 people at the bar, and a service bartender who was getting crushed trying to make uh, cocktails for about 40 guests, and one server to kind of run all of that. So it really just wasn't much more. I mean, I think at that point, you're bumping up against a level that three people can generate output and still provide uh, a semblance of good service. You know, I mean, there's just, I don't think we could have stretched ourselves any further than we did. Uh, So really, that was... It was more logistical why we weren't allowing standing, uh, but also to kind of preserve that feel. You know, you wouldn't, two two girlfriends who haven't seen each other since college could go and sit down at a bar stool and not have to worry about getting hit on every five minutes and have the conversation interrupted. It was a great date bar for the same reason. Lord knows we witnessed every first date, second date, third date, J date, blind date, anything you can think of over the course of that bar. Um, but it was a bar where people went um, – they didn't go there to meet people. They'd yeah. go there already on dates. Or, you know, this was a bar they'd go to do a propose or on an anniversary. It was kind of the big deal. You know, and it was, you know, these dark, low lighting, these deceptively strong drinks that were very – that went down way too smoothly. Like, everyone looks like a good idea in candlelight after a couple of drinks. So, right. you know, it was definitely – but it was definitely. also
0: not open late, so you weren't getting that like I've already had three drinks kind of vibe. Exactly. I mean, at that time, oh yeah, when it first opened, it was like closing at midnight or eleven thirty or
1: something. We, I think, when we first opened, we were open fairly late. Um, I think we were open till two most nights. It could have been three on weekends. And what happened was there was a bit of a a snafu in some. Really boring paperwork. I won't bore you with the details, but something along the lines of the name on a corporate name change document didn't match up with the corporate name listed on the liquor license application, or you know, some such thing of not dotting an i or crossing a t. The fun in the stuff about week. the business oh, that yeah.
0: everyone looks forward to when they think bar.
1: Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> but merely one of those critical details, and so the state liquor authority uh, just came down really hard on us and refused to renew our liquor license. Uh, and they weren't really giving us a reason why they weren't. So we were closed after the first few months uh, for a couple of weeks. And when we reopened, we reopened with vastly curtailed hours. Uh, we had, uh, At that point, we had gone to the community board three meeting, uh, which is a notoriously tough community board. Uh, and it was especially so at the time. And I guess the uh, the bar had rubbed some of our neighbors the wrong way. Um, our owner sat down at the meeting and much to his surprise had uh, the facade, the front facade of the bar likened to a boxcar heading to Auschwitz. Uh, That's the, always an
0: easy topic to, to just broach casually.
1: Just exactly what you want to mention in a public <laughs> forum. Uh, the black flag that was flying there was... Uh, was a nod to nazism uh we were all these things and you can just imagine the surprise that david jacob kaplan
0: uh who's <laughs> probably just got done watching a woody allen film yeah before so, he came to the so meeting. jewey
1: mcjewerson our owner <laughs> uh, was listening to this and just having his blood boil as he's thinking about family he lost in the holocaust yeah. and how unbelievably stupid what he was hearing was and just could not believe it and he just Pretty much that was uh, that was not a good relationship right off the bat with that community board. Um, we had an upstairs neighbor from hell uh, who would call the cops incessantly to complain about noise. Uh, and, you know, the cops would come in five, six nights a week with noise meters. Five,
0: six nights a week.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we pretty much knew the Nightlife Beat guys by name. Yeah. Um, You're like, and hey, Officer were, Smith. Yeah, good pretty pretty to see much. You, hey, you good. want a club soda? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they would come in
0: and, you, you know, turn there's him in, on, and Billy Holiday on like You're seven. like, hey, bro, yeah. <laughs> how, about a, how about a swizzle? Now he's like a cocktail pro. Like, come on, office, it's, it's low ABV, it's
1: Chinar. it's lovely. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's really know. more like a fortified wine. It'll be fine. Um... But I mean, you know, they'd come in, there's like Billie Holiday playing at about volume five and a half and every guest has a seat and they'd be like, so where's this raging out of control party that this guy keeps calling us about? They kept expecting someone to be swinging from the chandeliers. Broken chairs. Yeah. And there was, of course, none of that. And, you know, there's, it just, it was, uh, it was taxing. Uh, And so we, we felt like we were being fairly unjustly persecuted. Uh, considering especially, I mean, we're surrounded by you know crazy East Village dive bars with like shot and beer specials for four or five bucks. People are like stumbling out of those places, puking. I mean, we right. were a few blocks away from a bar called Cheap Shots, and yeah, somehow we were yeah. being
0: targeted. Yeah, uh,
1: you know, we the were the scourge of the East the, Village. Uh, the
0: fourteen, fifteen dollar cocktails yeah. is
1: clearly. <laughs> We were definitely the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry we were making all those frat boys vomit on your front <laughs> stoop. That was clearly us. Uh, so that was that was definitely a, a frustrating thing when we were trying to run this quality operation. felt like we were being uh, singled out both by the community and then by uh, the state liquor authority and seemingly for no reason on either one. And the SLA basically offered no justification for... Uh, denying us the renewal of the liquor license. So um, Dave took them to court. And this went on for about two and a half years. I want to say three, possibly four sets of lawyers. Uh, And we were, I think uh, as much as we always hated this term, I think we actually were a speakeasy uh, for a good chunk of that. Because we went... On serving alcohol to guests for two and a half years without an actual liquor license. Really? We were operating off of what's called a SAPA letter, which is a a court ordered letter. Basically, a judge signs and says, you are allowed to continue serving while we work out this appeals process. And usually that's like six weeks four weeks as, you know, something gets appealed and either gets approved or denied. Two and a half years later, we're still working off of a SAPPA letter. And that created tons of headaches um, just in terms of anytime you ordered booze, you would talk to one of your uh, reps at the distributor and they'd be like, no, we can't process the order. And you have to fax them the SAPPA letter again, just like you had the week before. And there are always these hiccups uh, with like getting product and things like that because it made it that much harder because... The SLA had said don't sell to these guys they don't have a liquor license and so you're more or less not blacklisted because you could get it cleared up but it was yet one more hurdle even to do something as easy as get booze Uh, so there was definitely a a big struggle uh, at DNC and uh, it's really a testament to Dave's tenacity um, and willingness to sink considerable resources into, uh, the legal fight to keep that bar alive and allow the staff, uh, to do what they do best. And I was really concentrated on making that a world-class cocktail operation. And, uh, you know, we were, we were spared a lot of that. And, you know, there were certainly times when we thought, are we going to have a job to go back to? There was a couple occasions where we were closed for two weeks at a time. And those are really just, nerve-wracking times i mean you you don't know if you have a job to go back to you don't know if this place that you helped build is going to exist anymore and you don't understand why it wouldn't so that was you're like let me get this drink on the cocktail menu before there is no cocktail menu. (laughs) exactly and you know who am i going to
0: work for after this you know like who would i who would be a good fit but that being said you left stand social which was a steady check some good money to go take a flyer on this place Uh, what did that mean to you
1: Well, I'd, uh, I'd had a, a good chat with, uh, the girl I was dating then, who's now my wife. And, uh, you know, she, she said, well, okay, she's a contact. She's an executive director for an educational nonprofit. So I'd say she works nine to five, but it's closer to eight to seven. Uh, and she, you know, Monday through Friday. So for us, weekends were the only time that we could really spend together. Uh, and when I was doing double duty between Sten and the early port, uh, early part of, Death & Co. I was working Friday nights at DNC, Sunday brunch at Stanton, usually pick up a Saturday night shift at one of the two bars, then work Sunday brunch, and then work su- su- Sunday brunch at Stanton, and then Sunday night at DNC. So it was four to five shifts every weekend. And after a little bit of that, uh, Rhea turns to me and says, that's just not sustainable. You need to pick uh because you can't keep working this much and keep this relationship going. And so I thought about it and was like, do I take the established uh, nightlife place or do I take this up and coming bar uh, where I'm super excited every time I go there about what I'm going to learn next? And so given the fact that I'd moved to New York in order to continue to grow and learn, I said, well, I'm not going to, I won't take the guaranteed payday here and I'll take a flyer on, on this place. And it
0: Obviously, it turned out to be uh, the best decision I could have ever made. So, what what lessons did you take from working at Death and Co. when you started up the the consulting alchemy, and then when you started up Pouring Ribbons?
1: Well, uh, Alchemy was founded by uh, my two partners, uh, Toby Maloney, who was the first bartender hired by Sasha at Milk and Honey. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, Toby's. OG, uh cocktail bartender. I mean, he goes way back in that scene. Uh first started working at Milk and Honey when that opened. He was one of the I think he worked at Flatiron for a bit. Uh he was, was at
0: a good scene at that time. I mean, that was like Julia Reiner. Oh, I used to show up just for that. And it was it's kinda
1: still one of the sexiest rooms in the city. I mean, it feels like you're drinking in Paris in the twenties. Like a it deco is. thing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely lovely. Um uh, he wor- he was uh, part of the opening staff at Pegu Club. Talk about ridiculous opening staffs. When I, right. when I think about the picture that got published in Food and Wine of that opening staff, you see like Jim Meehan, Chad Solomon, Sammy Ross, uh, Phil Ward, Brian Miller, Jimmy Kearns. I mean, you look at those guys, you're like, oh my
0: God. What's Sammy up to these days? I haven't seen that guy in a long time.
1: Sammy is uh, still at Milk and Honey.
0: Oh, he is. Uh, okay. Still
1: at Milk and Honey. I think he may still do a night at Little Branch, um, but he and Mickey, uh, who are more or less a Bert and Ernie of the cocktail world, are opening up Attaboy in the space that currently oh, houses that. Milk and Honey. Yeah. Got it. So Milk and Honey will be moving up, I want to say to 23rd, between 3rd and Lex or something. Uh, and hopefully that will be this coming December. And uh, at that point, hopefully we'll get Attaboy opening up shortly soon after, and uh, we'll get to see Mickey and Sammy's vision for a bar, which as anyone who's had the privilege of sitting at that tiny four seat bar, Milk and Honey, and witnessing the Mickey and Sammy show know it's easily one of the best shows in the business.
0: So, you did start up Pouring Ribbons, which is in the East Village. Tell me a little bit about it. Uh,
1: well, uh, Alchemy, like I said, was founded by uh, Toby and Jason Cott, who's definitely more of the business end. Uh, and they founded this company about six or seven years ago, uh, taking advantage of Jason's business savvy and Toby's uh, ability to create deliciousness out of pretty much anything near him. Uh, and they went on to open up bars like the Violet Hour in Chicago, which is a pioneering cocktail bar in the Midwest. Um The Bradstreet Crafts House, uh, which is a hotel bar in Minneapolis, the Patterson House in Nashville. We recently opened the Catbird Seat, uh, which is a restaurant that's gotten a lot of acclaim. Congratulations. Uh, And that was about eight, nine months ago we opened that up. Uh, So Alchemy's had their hand in in quite a few projects around the country, and we run both of the Hyatt on Dawes properties here in New York. Uh, we were also part of the opening for the Hotel Williamsburg when that was being sure. run by the the Graves Hotel Group upon its opening. Uh, so, but what we lacked was a a home here in New York. Uh, the four of us, Troy Seidel, uh, the fourth partner, moved to New York. He was a Violet Hour bartender who came on as a partner uh, two, maybe three years ago now. Um, the four of us all were based in New York, and we were taking on these projects for liquor companies, for hotel groups, and we were working out of our home bars, you know, and we weren't able to, we didn't have a space for for meetings, for office, for to show what we did to potential clients, to existing clients, to do R&D, uh, so we knew we needed our own space. And that's really where Pouring Ribbons came out of. It was born out of necessity. We needed a flagship New York property that we could use as an office space, that we could use uh, for so many things, and especially to cultivate a staff that we could then grow into what the following projects
0: will be. But I mean, that being said, out of the functionality part of it, it seems to have developed uh, quite a following just as a bar people like to go to.
1: That was the plan. Uh, yeah.
0: I think that was
1: more than anything else. What we wanted was to create a a bar. You know, I didn't want it to be strictly speaking a cocktail bar. I wanted the the feel of it to be a m- little more loose. Pouring Ribbons is a much bigger space uh, than say a PDT or a Death and Company. You know, we have a lot more square footage uh, than Milk and Honey. We're wider. We're longer. Um, and sometimes it is about the size, you know, it really does give you a lot That's of what flexibility. Oh, sorry. Ooh. Uh, it gives us a lot of flexibility when it comes to, uh, you know, if a four top becomes an eight top that doesn't become a deal breaker the way it does. at sure. a seating only. Okay, establishment. Say, Hey, you know, come on in. Why don't, why don't you move over to this center high tops and, you know, four or five of you can sit, the others can stand, you can mill about, uh, or we'll wait for that bankette to open up and we'll move you over there. Cool. You know, we have that flexibility. We wanted to say no to guess less often. You know, <laughs> it's like if you want a dirty martini, here you go. I'm not turning my nose up at you. Here's here's some olive brine and vodka, have at it. You want a Cosmo, I've got cranberry juice. Have at it, you know? And knowing that the less often we said no to guess, the more comfortable they would feel. And if we earn their trust with whatever that first drink is, if we make them the best. Cosmo they've ever had if after that we've earned their trust and from there we can always say well if you like that I mean I've got this great drink called the south side that I think you'd really like they're much more likely to say absolutely I put myself in your hands you shake it up you give it to them they say oh god that's so good what's in that like gin mint lime they're like hate gin but you love that oh I guess I don't really hate gin this is really good like okay great now you broke down that barrier the next drink could be a tequila drink it could be a whiskey drink and you know if they swear up and down they hate whiskey and you make them a a nice honeyed irish whiskey sour a uh, little bitters thrown in there they're just going to fall over with how tasty and smooth and lovely that is and you know again you've opened up you're just opening new new paradigms for them with every drink. And at that point, they're just eating out of the palm of your hand and you've got their trust. You would not have earned that trust if you'd half-assed that first vodka drink. You never would have gotten them to drinking uh, a fitty fitty Martini or a two to one Manhattan. You never would have had that chance if you didn't earn their trust with that first drink. And that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that a guest, any guest can walk in and say, hey, I'm having a beer and not feel the need to apologize for it. I have really cool beer. I have really nice wines and I'd love for you to try them. I have some really esoteric grapes and I think, you know, this is interesting and you shouldn't feel like you're getting shorted or you're getting the least imaginative option on our menu because you're not having a cocktail.
0: Do you think that sometimes people associate mixology bars with a little bit of a not so welcoming vibe because of the speakeasy trend or because of the sense of, hey, this is all about technique, bro. And if you don't understand it, you should go somewhere else. I think there
1: there's a lot of uh there's a lot of truth to that. I think there a lot of cocktail bars have uh, suffered from uh, kind of a, a bad reputation when it comes to service uh in some respects. And a lot of that is some of it is their fault and some of it isn't. You know, I mean if you have a tiny bar uh, and people are told it's two or three of them, and they're told it's a two-hour wait to get in, that's off-putting right off the bat. you know. And how that gets handled at the door, it can really color their perception of a place. You know, If they feel like they were treated shabbily or rudely at the door, they just were told no, which no one likes to hear. Uh, they may already come in with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Now they come in, it's a busy night, You know, they got sat. There was a six-top and a four-top that got sat ahead of them. You know, that's where they fell into the order in the service queue. Now they're waiting 15 minutes to get that first round of drinks. It's been maybe 20 minutes since they got sat and got watered and menued. You know, now they're sitting there wondering how much longer they're going to have to wait in order to get a drink in this place. I mean, they're practically already writing a negative Yelp review as they wait. You know, and so that can you know, that can kind of feed into uh, some of this backlash where it's like, oh, these guys think they're so great and they can't even get me a drink inside of 15 minutes, you know, and there's a lot of that negativity. And some of that is reinforced by um, a large percentage or not a large, but a significant percentage of bartenders at these bars uh, got into this relatively recently and maybe haven't barred bartended in shot and beer bars, or clubs, or pubs, or uh, even restaurants, and have very little actual bartending experience, and really got into this out of an enthusiasm for cocktails, which makes them wonderful when you want to discuss the intricacies of uh, Lille Blanc versus Coké Americano, or, you know, the evolution of uh, the Sazerac from cognac to rye, and, you know, that sort of thing. But doesn't really do much when they don't know how to cut someone off uh, when they've been overserved because they've never had to do it before. And so what you would find is uh, guests would have a poorer perception of the service at these places because a lot of times these relatively inexperienced cocktail bartenders wouldn't look up from their jiggers or their mixing glasses or tins uh, up from the drink room, more or less, up to acknowledge whoever was sitting in front of them. I think Jim Meehan put it best when he said... Uh, mixologists serve drinks, bartenders serve guests. And, you know, I'm not sure if that was wholly original to him, but he was the first one who I heard that from and it always stuck with me. And, you know, it really is, it's a critical difference, your ability to to really respond to a guest's need versus uh, simply produce a cocktail. And I think that's kind of where the disconnect came from where people said, oh, I get bad service at these places. They were getting technically proficient drinks made, but they weren't, having someone who is kind of reading what they really wanted from that interaction. And that's really what bartending is. And that's why I say it's so hard to teach that. I mean, the the ability to read people and have an empathy for what they want from you, whether they want uh, you to come in and, and chat with them, whether they want to talk at you, whether or not uh, they want to be left alone uh, how you would treat them on a first date versus a third date when they're there with their boss, when they're there with their employees, when they're there with their parents, when they're there with their college friends. If you only ever give them one experience, that's the only thing they'll ever go back to you for. But if you know how to recognize and respond to each of those situations and you adjust your service for them accordingly. You go up to a first date that's clearly struggling. You make a joke and then you follow that joke up with a question about a trip, you know, your regular just took and you get that conversation going, you know, you can walk away and you did your job right there. You just helped them out. And, you know, your life is better for that guest. They're going to come back on another first date, you know, because they knew they, they recognized how you helped them out. And that's bartending, you know, like the, the drink making thing is is fine and dandy but bartending is really reacting to your guests and giving them what they want you know sometimes it's making fun of them sometimes it's making them look like a rock star
0: so you did have some real broad experience you worked at death and co you worked at some some real hot spots in new york you worked in boston some some places where I shot in a beer how did all of those experiences kind of play into how pouring ribbons was designed
1: well i think a lot of what um people keep asking well, what's the theme of pouring ribbons what's the um you know, what? if you guys have to describe yourselves, what would it be? And the short answer is simply conviviality and deliciousness. And I wanted that to extend to the entirety of what is ultimately a pretty large space where we can have up to about a hundred guests uh, in there between seating and standing. Uh, so one thing we felt was critical, uh, both from a hiring perspective as a filtering mechanism was during the interviews, saying right off the bat, Uh, everyone is working floor shifts as well as bar shifts. So uh, no one will simply be behind the bar. There's not going to be that. Everyone will be fully cross-trained. And so we got some pushback from uh, some candidates who more or less told us that, you know, they they didn't carry trays and we happily informed them that they would not be carrying a tray somewhere else. And, you know, we try to really put together a team of people who were going to operate as a team. We didn't want there to be the division between the, uh, the cocktail server, who is simply the vessel for you know, the drinks and who's shuttling this stuff back and forth uh, to the exalted bartender behind the bar, this you know, uh, repository of wisdom and technique. You know, we wanted everyone to be on the same page. So during our seven or eight days of uh, staff training, Everyone went through the same physical training. Everyone learned how to jigger the way we wanted them to. Everyone learned how to stir and shake. Everyone tasted through every single ingredient that went into every single drink. And we probably tasted them on close to 40 drinks over that week. Uh, And they tasted every single part of it. We tried to give them the vocabulary uh, to really talk about and explain why every ingredient was in every drink. And the upshot of that is the server... uh, No matter where you sit at Pouring Ribbons, uh, the server has exactly the same knowledge and vocabulary and the same ability to guide you through the menu, the same ability to answer any of your questions, to make dealer's choice uh, recommendations. If you don't want to make decisions, they know how to ask the right questions and kind of filter out in order to get close to what should be a good guess as to what you want. And we really wanted that to be uh, the case. So at this point, we had a couple of our staff who uh really were so much stronger on the floor who hadn't had bartending experience and over the course of these first 10 weeks or so we've gotten them behind the bar and they've done full bar shifts and worked service and you know really just blown our minds with how good and how strong they've been uh with that and It's just amazing to see. And then at the same time, they've been so huge and helping us kind of wipe that terrified expression on our face when we are carrying, you know, a tray with nine drinks on it, you know, and doing that. I I hadn't carried a tray in seven and a half years. And I certainly wasn't going to exempt myself from the same stipulation that I was putting on my staff. I work floor shifts every week uh, as well as being behind the bar. Uh, So I knew I definitely didn't want um, anyone who was working the floor to be treated dismissively by the guests. And we really wanted to have a very level playing field uh, modeling on a bigger scale, kind of what Sasha has always done in milk and honey, what Meehan has done over the last couple of years of PDT and
0: just doing it in a much bigger environment. And what are some of the kind of specialty things about pouring rivers in terms of the beverages there?
1: Uh, Well, we have a, small but fairly dynamic cocktail menu uh 15 or so house drinks uh same number of classics and we'll probably be switching those up five maybe six at a time every about six weeks oh, okay. so being able to switch it up a few times during each season uh giving us a chance to respond to uh, smaller degrees of seasonality uh giving us a chance to really make sure that the drinks that we're putting out are exactly the versions of them that you want to have there, and knowing if a drink isn't quite ready to go, that you still have a little time. If it doesn't work now, give it another month. It'll make it on the next menu, and it'll still work. Uh, so it kind of eases some of the pressure. It's also easier to switch over, you know, ten drinks than it is to switch over thirty or forty. Your mise en place and your wells change so dramatically uh, with the other approach. So it's just slightly easier that way. But then I think probably what we've gotten uh, a fair amount of attention for, and what we certainly devoted a a very prominent central section of the menu too is our vintage chartreuse uh, selection which is uh certainly due to uh my partner troy seidel's uh, devotion to this beautiful uh monk made liqueur and uh troy has bought an auction a beautiful selection of vintage chartreuse going back to the uh Definitely the 90s, the 80s, 70s, 50s, and back to the 40s. Wow. Uh, so, you know, with 130 different herbs, spices, botanicals, roots, sparks, flowers, fruits, what have you, in there, uh, this is a spirit that has the potential to over long aging to really start expressing itself in new and interesting ways. Uh, with that many ingredients in there, it stands to reason that some of them are a little more ephemeral than others, and it's always curious to see what two three four decades will do in terms of what notes you're losing and what's rising to take their place and so far the response has been uh giddy disbelief to uh you know just sheer joy uh sometimes confusion but then once people put it in their mouth they're like oh this is delicious monk juice and uh now i get why you guys are so excited about it and you know uh Some people have developed a rather unhealthy and expensive addiction to 1950s green chartreuse. And uh, that is, as we've been informed, it is dangerously, dangerously close to crack and considerably more expensive. Uh, So we're happy, happy to keep addicting people to, to this and kind of opening up their, I mean, you just don't go to bars and drink liqueurs. Uh, Very, very few people would go to a bar and just drink a liqueur. And you see a lot more bars that focus on a spirit and doing it on this strange, wonderful, mysterious liqueur just kind of seemed to make sense. And uh, Troy's passion for it has really just been so contagious. He's gotten the whole staff uh, really into it and just watching and listening to him transmit that to guests has just been wonderful.
0: Because one of the things that I've seen at Pouring Ribbons is not only is it industry people, which mm-hmm. there seem to be a lot of there.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah we're really lucky with the with the response from our colleagues and our peers.
0: But it is that kind of like cast of thousands that I remember Jim used to talk about sometimes that like does roll in there and they yeah. just look like regular people. They don't sure. look like, you know, like, you know, this not wearing a vest. You know, it's yeah, like the no, regular dude. I, you absolutely. Know? Yeah, we love it. But let me ask you, I mean... It seems like, from the sommelier perspective, that the bar world, the industry is so supportive of each other. Do you find that? Does that kind of, like, fill your tank a little bit? Like, when you look around and dudes are coming to your bar to hang with you, other really respected bartenders? I mean, because a lot of times sommeliers don't hang necessarily with other at the bar of other sommeliers. Is that something that's a little different about the cocktail scene? I think, uh, I mean, again, the cocktail community,
1: uh, however much it's mushroomed and really... uh, Ballooned almost exponentially in the last few years. It's still a tiny little subset. Yeah. And so you know, I mean, I know all the guys in San Francisco. I know a bunch of the crew in L.A. I know people in Chicago, in St. Louis, in New Orleans. Uh, I mean, Paris, London, Tokyo. I mean, we have contacts all over the world, and we constantly communicate with each other about techniques, about recipes. I'll get text messages from. Uh, other countries or other states about hey what 's your spec on this and I know it's uh, there's a regular sitting at their bar who wants one of our drinks, and I happily text it over to make sure i 'm helping that person make that guest who's sitting in front of them feel special and get exactly what they want and you know I certainly do the same when uh when I know someone is in town from uh from a bar from out of town if, oh, Murray Stenson sent you from the zigzag. Okay, now I know where the bar has been raised for customer service, you know, and actually speaking of Murray and talking about the bar community, uh, that's a a great segue because Murray, uh, as you may have heard, uh, Murr, the blur Stenson, legend, uh, not just within his native Seattle, but all across the country, uh, one of the best bartenders uh, now in his I want to say 60s or 70s. He's been doing this for a very, very long time. Uh, And he has some heart troubles. And these heart ailments have rung up uh, six-figure medical bills. And like most bartenders, doesn't have health insurance. And the response all around the country has been spectacular. And an enormous amount, well over $100,000, has been raised by bartenders uh, hosting fundraisers for Murray. Uh, in order to help him offset his medical bills and help him through this very difficult time. And some people have never met Murray and are, you know, working shifts in order to help benefit him. Uh, And it's been extraordinary to see everyone rally around. I've seen a number of these things, not just for people as well known as Murray, but, you know, a bartender who got doored while they were on a bike and, you know, was laid out for a couple months. Someone who I think someone fell off a bridge and I heard about this and they, you know, they're raising money uh, for them. People who have lost everything in fires and stuff like that where, you know, it's just these unexpected things that happen that if you don't have insurance can really be uh, crippling. Uh, So the way we've all gathered around and responded, and of course with Sandy happening a few weeks ago and the amount of businesses that were affected with that, seeing uh, bartenders, Band together and raise money to help uh, struggling businesses, to help with uh, relief in general uh, for Sandy. Aid has uh, been astonishing. We raised seventeen grand at that Pegu Club fundraiser. Uh, I think twenty-five grand was raised at the at the one at the Wren. Forty-four thousand was raised at the one at Ward Three. That just happened. I'm I'm seeing staggering numbers getting raised at some of these fundraisers. And it's great because some of that money is going to go to help St. John reopen Fort Defiance and get back on his feet in Red Hook. Some of that hopefully is going to go to uh, uh, the guys like at Evelyn Drinkery, who only opened up a couple weeks after we did at Pouring Ribbons and who you know are still dealing with massive losses when it comes to infrastructure and equipment due to the flooding on Avenue C. Uh, so just seeing how people have come together, not just around the city, but even around the country. Uh, bartenders in San Francisco have rallied and sent us money. We had uh, Larry uh, and Susie down in Louisville did an extraordinary thing where they had some fundraisers and they literally came up and brought cash to distribute directly to New York bar owners, uh, to distribute to the staffs who had been out of work for a week or longer uh, due to Sandy uh, and uh, the lack of power. So. I mean, you have bars in Louisville who, you know, are essentially paying New York bartenders because they knew they, they might be struggling. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. And so, I mean, yes, there's a huge community. And I'd say it's uh, never, never more obvious than in the last few weeks how much we really do look out for each other and how much we know that uh, supporting each other is critical for uh, just your ability to move forward as a
0: business. Joaquin Simo. Go introduce yourself to him at Pouring Ribbons and become a part of that larger community. Thank you for being on the show today, sir. Thank you so much for having me. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ra Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs...